doing? This is Mark Marshall with Anatomy of Tone for episode four. In this week's episode, I want to discuss the Chase Bliss Audio CXM 1978 Digital Reverb. We're going to talk about Muddy Waters' use of microtonal pitches in his slide guitar playing. I'm going to talk about a tip that uh, somebody showed me about using bandanas and alligator clips on gigs to contain the attack on drums and the resonance. I want to start off with a conversation about how to more democratically approach conversations about music with people. And these could be friends or especially acquaintances and people that you don't know very well because I think with the people that you're close with, you can obviously be a little more blunt about your feelings about music or certain artists. But if there's somebody that you don't know really well, it's really interesting to me how people can take great offense to opinions on their favorite artist or for their favorite songs. Music is really interesting in a way because I feel that people have a lot of different ways that they can get attached to music. So it could be because of it's a memory they have of a family member or an experience they went through or many different reasons that, that people can be attached to the song, which is aside sometimes from even say, the, the technical, I don't know, complexity of a song. So there are people that have an attachment to a, a, a very popular song that might not have much, you know, no, um, depth to it. Uh, and maybe that's by intention. It wasn't intended to be a deep song. Their connection to it might have nothing to do even with the song. It might just be the time period that the song was played in. So if you're having a conversation with somebody and you, you start saying a bluntly like i hate that song that song is the simplest three chord song i've ever heard it all of a sudden triggers people and and they start feeling attacked um and i've been thinking about this a lot lately i think my younger self used to be a lot more aggressive and and uh, and and i would just say things like that that music's crap this song you know i, I hate this song and and the older i've i've gotten i think that i tend to look at music differently of course i tend to realize that i have my own tastes now in music but i tend to see things less as good and bad as, as more of like just different flavors and of course i have a, a certain palette and there's flavors that i'm gonna like that maybe other people don't and and vice versa but I try not to, to look at it in such a, a, a black and white as this is junk and this is not junk because music is written for a lot of different purposes. Some is meant to be light and not meant to be really deep or contemplative and, and some is meant to be deep and contemplative and um, technically difficult. So I think we need the counterbalance. We need all that music. Despite what your feelings are, I think when you're you're dealing with people that you might make music with in the future or these are people that you aren't really close with. I think it's best to proceed with a little bit of mindfulness when having those discussions. I've seen people almost get into to fists over whether the Beatles are good or not, which is was pretty interesting to me. Uh, I understand that uh, some people might not love the Beatles. I grew up with the Beatles and, and I have a lot of nostalgia with them and I happen to love their music, but I get why everybody might not. You know, It's, it's just like food. Not everybody is going to love habanero pepper right? or uh, maple syrup. So it doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, it just means that it's not right for their flavor palette. But how you approach it can can affect the conversation. For that reason, you're going to notice in this podcast that I don't throw any shade at any artists. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that people get into music and what somebody is into now, however trite or overly complicated or whatever it is you think it is, maybe the gateway to them that inspires them to make music and maybe they'll continue to make the same music or they might venture down a different road and do something completely opposite later on. But I think it's important to be encouraging and mindful of, uh, of other people's connections to music. I've seen people get really upset when people have mentioned things or like somebody says a song and they're like, that song is complete garbage. You know, that artist is an idiot. It's that. And it's just, they, it just makes people put up a guard and, and people remember that stuff for a long time. And believe it or not, I feel like it can affect you from getting called for another gig. Uh, and n not necessarily that it, it should be, you know, because 
just because you don't like the same music. But I think it has less to do with the fact that you don't like the music. It's how you approach it. And I've seen people approach it and say things like, oh, yeah, I, I get why they're really good. It's not like a, a sound that I listen to a lot or I haven't heard a bunch of it. It's not necessarily my thing. But, yeah, I could totally see how you're into it. I think there's a very different way of approaching it and saying that it's not something that you're deeply into but also disarming the situation and, and uh, kind of – making it uh, as least like a gladiator fight as it can. I feel sometimes people try to turn music into sports. You know, They try to pit artists against each other. Who's the greatest guitar player? I mean, who's the greatest songwriter? Who's the greatest singer? And, and I just feel music, no matter how much they try to have competition shows and stuff, it really isn't competitive. The only person you're really competing with is yourself because you're the only person like you. How do you compare two artists that are... Uh, even if they're in the same genre, they're, they're really not like each other. So it's not really like being on a, on a field and, and, and matching up uh, the same exact skills. Their emotions and people are, are expressing emotions and everybody has such a radically different life experience. I'm just putting that out there because I had a conversation with a friend this week about that topic and what it feels like when somebody does that to music that you like or the experiences maybe when we've done that in the past. So just something to think about. A good friend of mine and great drummer, Spencer Cohen, showed me a really great tip recently that I was really psyched about, and I I just couldn't believe I never thought about this my whole life, but he uh, was using bandanas on his drums to just calm the resonance down, which I've seen before, and I actually have some bandanas for that purpose, but he was using these binder clips that you can get at Staples. I called them butterfly clips before, but I don't know if that's actually what they're called. I see them on Staples now, and they're called binder clips, and they're really cheap. They're like three or four bucks for a whole bunch of them. So what he did with these binder clips is he would put the uh, bandana on the drum, and then he'd put binder clips on two different positions to hold the bandana down because what happens sometimes if you're not using the whole bandana to cover the drum head, you would hit the drum and the bandana falls off because sometimes you only need maybe 25% of the bandana covering the drum. You just need to cut a little of the sustain off the drum. You don't need to completely choke the drum. So the binder clips are amazing because they hold them in position. I did a gig recently in upstate New York and uh, the the house drum kit wasn't the best. Uh, there were a couple of reasons why I was using the bandanas on the drums. One was to contain the sustain. They were just sustaining too much for the type of music that we were playing. The other reason was the attack of the drums because of the heads that were on there. There were these drum heads I didn't like. They were clear heads and fairly heavy. They had a lot of attack to them. They sounded very plasticky. I was using wood tip drumsticks, but still, even with that, like the attack was just a little too too bright and plasticky. So I was, uh, on one of the drums in particular, I had the, it was a snare drum actually, I had the bandana on like a corner, like a, like a quarter of it, like a, an edge of it uh, with the binder clips on just to kill the sustain. Then I put another bandana completely over it so that I was actually playing on top of the bandana so that it killed some of the sharp attack and the brightness from the drum head. So there are two ways that we could use them there and both you could use the binder clips to ensure that when you're playing you're not knocking the bandana off and it's uh, it's a really cheap hack and works really great. Now I prefer the bandanas to the gels I'm not a big fan of the gels, though. I guess I kind of love the way that they feel. Never really had great luck with them on the drums. You know, you can cut them to different sizes. I've tried the drum tacks, which are actually pretty great. I thought those did a much better job, and I do like the way they sound. They're great. They're a little expensive, and then uh, you can lose them and have to buy more. Bandanas, where I feel like I'm losing them less, so... Uh, I, I, and I like the way that they sound. One of the other things I like about the bandanas is that they breathe when you hit the drums, meaning... If I'm just only using, say, the corners of the, uh, the the bandana on the drums, I have them locked down with the binder clips on the drum rim. Then when I hit the drum, the bandana bounces up a little bit 
lets the drum ring a little until it falls down. And you can't hear it falling down. So I even use this with microphones all the time when I'm recording. You don't hear the bandana come down and hit the head, but it lets the drum ring open for a, little, a second and then it touches the head and then and then starts muting the drum, which I like. I find it's a, it's a nice resonant sound. So initially you get a little more resonance before it starts choking the drum head. I prefer that. So for that reason, in my cymbal bag, I always have a bag of these binder clips. And then I always have enough bandanas for a four piece drum kit, plus an extra one or two in case I need to cover the head of a drum somewhere. Muddy Waters is one of my favorite slide guitar players. I really love the way that his slide playing is almost identical to his singing. He really has a voice through his slide. In some ways, I really consider that he plays microtonal slide. He's not intentionally always hitting the note straight on. A lot of times playing slide guitar, we spend a lot of time trying to execute our technique so that we can perfectly land on a note and have our intonation be perfect, right? I've spent a lot of time doing that. I play with drones. I have an app for the phone that is a drone and I sit in a room and I play slide guitar and I practice with different strings and different tunings to make sure I can move around and my intonation can be right on because it, it needs to be for recording sessions and live work. But right on sometimes is subjective. Now, of course, if you play a note with incorrect intonation in the wrong setting or with the wrong method, it's going to sound like a wrong note. But there are ways you can be a little flat from a note with intention and it can sound amazing. And this is what Muddy Waters does. I'm going to grab a guitar in a second and demonstrate this, but I've always really loved this. And there's an interesting thing about this is that he always goes flat from the note up, meaning that he slides into the flat note. You don't really hear him slide downward very often. And I'm going to demonstrate this, but it, it's it's such a wonderful sound and so him. You know, it's just when I hear it, and I don't hear people do it too often, but when I do, it's just like, oh, it's just, it just makes me so nostalgic for Muddy's music. I'm using a National Resonator, and it's an open G tuning, which is from low to high, D, G, D, G, B, D. I'm using a medicine bottle glass slide, and these are some of my favorites. I also use slides from, uh, from Rocky Mountain Slides, which I have one custom made that has a rough spot on it so I can scratch the strings for a violin-like effect, a bowing effect, and I really like that. But for a traditional slide, I'm just using this medicine bottle. Now, in Muddy's earlier career, he played in open G tuning a lot. When he moved to Chicago, he started switching to playing in standard tuning because he didn't have to play as full of chords. He was able to now play these slinky lines in the context of a full band when they went electric. I'm going to demonstrate this in G. He used this technique with uh, open tuned and um, standard tuning guitar when he played slide guitar. So the thing he does is if we think of our note and our destination note here. So if we think of our note, it's a G note, so if we think of that note, now he would play that note, but sometimes he'd go a little flat from it intentionally, like. So you can hear, the trick to it is I'm traveling up to the G, the G note. But then the next time I travel up, I'm just shy of the fret. And next time even more, a little, a little more shy. And I go up and down, meaning our target pitch. So let me, let me specify because I'm not sliding the slide down. You don't really hear him, you don't hear that much from Muddy. So everything is like a slide up to a note. I'm just changing my target position of where the slide up ends. So I'm sliding all the way up to the G note. I'm sliding up to the G note, just a hair flat from the fret. A hair, another hair flat from the fret. Now I'm going to go back up a little closer, closer until I'm right on the fret again. So there's our perfect pitch. And you can hear it now with the open G string resonating.
adds such a wonderful expression to it. And I think that's something that's starting to lack a little bit for music. Not everybody. I think in the mainstream, I think we look at music a bit now as being too mathematically perfect. Uh, uh, Billie Holiday, and I think she's another one that would intentionally sing flat or intentionally be sharp on a note because there's other feelings there. Like if I'm, if I only played that perfectly in tune. just lacks some personality as opposed to and I like that uh, I, I do like a lot of microtonal music and as we travel the world with music you're going to find that outside of the, the western realm of music there are a lot of uh, cultures that use microtonal tuning period so I always thought that was a very deep aspect of Muddy's playing he did it with his singing too you could um, hear it in Standing Around Crying which was one of his favorite recordings that he ever made uh, he uses both of these techniques in that and I love that tune but again it's a way that he He's uh, playing guitar like he's singing his voice. If you have any questions about playing slide guitar, feel free to reach out. I do teach, and I'm also just glad to answer any questions if you have them. Let's take a deeper look into the Chase Bliss Audio's CXM1978. This has become one of my all-time favorite reverbs. I've long been a fan of the Lexicon 224, which was one of the first digital reverbs. It wasn't the first. The EMT250 was the first digital reverb, but the 224, I think, became more popular amongst a lot of studios. And we all know the sound. It's been on countless records from the late 70s and the 80s. One of my favorite uses of it, and one of the things that turned me on to it, was the Blade Runner soundtrack, which I'm just a huge fan of. I really love the vibe of the film. And of course, the sound of the Yamaha CS80 run through so much reverb on the Lexicon 224. Now, Chase Bliss set out to recreate that sound in a pedal, which is awesome. So you can have it to take gigs. And also, it's as powerful to use in the studio. And it can take uh, guitar level instruments or line level instruments. And you can you can change which uh, signal it's, it wants to see as the input. So that allows you to use it as outboard gear for your studio, which uh, I love. I haven't bonded with a lot of reverb plugins. I do like the Valhalla reverbs. I think they're fantastic. They're, they're my go-tos when it comes to using reverb plugins in the studio, as well as the UAD EMT 140. I really like that reverb plugin a lot. But a lot of the other ones I just haven't bonded with. The CXM 1978 also has a lot of headroom, which I think is fantastic. I could run my Prophet 10 into it, which outputs a lot of volume. Uh, I could run drums, I could run a bunch of things into it, and it can take it without getting distorted. Now, where a lot of other pedals, even if I'm reamping them, sometimes like the low end on the synth will be too much for certain analog pedals and they'll start to get a little crunchy. So I really have to watch the volume output on a lot of uh, synth devices in particular with using pedal effects as outboard device. But the CXM is just flawless with that. It could really handle that. And it really is like using a studio reverb in the size of a pedal. I didn't really bond with the Eventide H9. I know it's really well designed and uh, has a lot of uh, options on it. You could do so many effects on it. It doesn't just do reverb, but to my ears, the processing on it, it sounds digital. Uh, and you might be okay with it. You might like that. But for me and my tastes, I can hear the digitalness. It, it gets thin to me and sounds a little plasticky. Now, I have plenty of friends that are really happy with the H9 like it, but when I tried it, I just I just uh, knew it wasn't going to be in my, my signal chain, especially on a guitar pedal board or keyboard pedal board. But the CXM1978, I'm not sure what they did differently. It is a collaboration with Maris Audio, and, and they really know what they're doing. And it sounds... Uh, thick and full and I don't get the sense that I'm running through digital gear so I get the wonderful 
sound of early digital reverb without it making the sound plasticky or or thin or anything like that. So I was really impressed with that. That was one of the things that really sold me on the pedal was was I could put this in my signal chain with all my analog pedals and I don't really feel like it's degrading my signal going to an amp. Let's talk about some of the features on it. There are three types of rooms on it. We have a, a room, we have a hall, and we have a plate. I've used all these a lot with uh, great results, everything from like drums to various synth sounds. Now, I like to record a lot of guitars and synth sounds with the reverb baked into them if it's for special effects. There are times when I know that I might want that flexibility in mixing, so I might leave it, but there are times when you're sound designing meaning the sound you're getting is just, it's it becomes integrated into the part that you're writing. Those, I never try to recreate those things later. They're impossible. If you're like, well, I'm going to record it dry and then try to get this sound back. I don't, it's just, it's it's never going to be the same and, and, and I just don't do it. So uh, there are times when I plug in to my Prophet 10 or my OB6 or 2600, I plug it into the CXM 1978, I get the reverb happening and it's a cool effect and that gets, gets printed. So that now is a sound that I'm gonna mix. So we have the three rooms, or the three options for rooms, and we have tank mods. So there are modulations, right? So these are options to put modulation on the reverb. There's low, it's subtle, organic liveliness. I'm reading this on their website. There's medium, dreamy, chorus like waves. And there's high, rotating speaker-inspired overtones. I really love the medium mode on this. It just puts me right back into the early 80s. There's just like a sound that I was very melancholy, I feel like, from 1979 to maybe 1984. Having this chorus on just kind of does it, and it just sounds so lovely. And there's three different diffusion options. Now, diffusion, basically, it allows you to smear the reverb's initial attack. So, basically... It's like how much you hear whatever you're setting into it bouncing around the room. And there's settings where you hear less of the ping-ponging, like the, the, the bouncing. If you're using percussion, sometimes you'll hear all these like these bright reflections bouncing around the room. You can adjust that so you hear less reflections or you hear more. Sharp attacks, I tend to turn the uh, diffusion uh, to a setting where I'm not hearing it as much. But again, material-dependent because sometimes that could be a really cool effect. There's another cool thing they did on the CXM 1978 is there is a, a clock button and this basically allows you to create, if you want, the lo-fi sound of the 1978 Lexicon 224. And it allows you to, to have a more modern setting, which is a little cleaner. So, uh, so basically what happens, it's like the sample rate was lower back then. And so there was like this natural crunchiness that happened with the reverb. Where in more modern stuff, it's a lot more high fidelity, so you don't hear that as much. There's also a lo-fi setting, which uh, gives you manual control over the sample rate. So you could really kind of degrade the digital sound a lot and get really messed up with it, which is kind of cool because you could do destructive things with the reverb and get creative. So for instance, in the hi-fi mode, it runs at 48K 32-bit. In the standard mode, it runs at 24K 16-bit. In the lo-fi mode, it runs between 48K and 2.4K and 16-bit. So meaning it's a variable between that 48K and 2K. So if you get it at 2K, then it's going to be really crunchy and, and really kind of mangled as opposed to the, the 48K, which is the, the hi-fi setting. The 24K would have been like the 1978 sound. I've used a lot of reverbs and it's been really hard for me to settle on a reverb pedal. Aside from the spring reverbs, I found the Surfy Bear and the Demeter, which are really great. But as far as finding a digital reverb, I've always just been very unsatisfied. Uh, they just tend to sound digital to me. The last one I had, I've had many, the last one I had was the Strymon Blue Sky. Oh no, it was the Big Sky. And it's a well-made pedal. And, and in a lot of ways, I guess it could suffice for uh, a lot of gigs. But I don't know. It just didn't inspire me. I felt like uh, it did the job, but it didn't do anything extra. And for me, the gear I keep, it tends to be gear that does extra. It just there's something about the sound that inspires me. And when I plug it in and I and I start making music with it, it takes me on a journey. We go on a journey together, and, and it's in you know I can I can interact with it, and and we end up somewhere where I didn't expect because of the interaction. The Big Sky didn't do that for me, not only in the tone, but also in the way I felt like I was uh, adjusting the parameters. I didn't feel like even with the expression pedal, with the Big Sky, 
that uh, it was super intuitive or those moments were happening. It happened pretty immediately with the CXM. I was just immediately like doing cool things with it. And the Big Sky's tone just wasn't inspiring either. Now, I love Strymon's uh, El Capistan. I think that's a fantastic pedal. They really knocked that one out of the park. And I'm not saying the Big Sky is not made well and they're not a good company. I'm just saying the particular flavor and the layout of that pedal... I didn't connect with it and, and feel uh, overly creative with it. And that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I got with the CXM. When you have the faders, such as on the CXM 1978, you, you'll be surprised at how often you actually start interacting and changing the parameters on it way more than I would with another reverb. Sometimes I would just, it wouldn't be right, but I didn't want to dig into a menu and adjust it. But with this, I'll be getting a synth sound or playing guitar and I immediately will just go over to it and just start playing around with it to get sounds and try to adjust it. And what happens if I crank the mids, but I pull the bass down in the reverb or, or I, uh, I take all the treble out or there's so many neat things you can do with it. I'm, I'm changing the diffusion i'm changing the tank i'm changing the modulation like i'm just plugging and playing with these things all the time to get different sounds out of them and it's very interactive that way very much in the way that i'm using some of my other analog effects like the ardx20 from analog man or the tube tape echo in this first guitar example i'm going to be using a fender stratocaster with fsc 59 pickups in it i'm going to run into a Tease Picture Wah, which is by far my favorite Wah pedal I've ever used. It's just really a special Wah pedal. It's blown my mind with how rich and thick and expressive it sounds. And that is running into an Analog Man Sunface. It's a Germanium Sunface. One of the cool things about the T-Swah is that it has fuzz-friendly circuitry in it, so meaning I can run the wah-wah before the fuzz, and it doesn't do anything negative to the fuzz pedal, which is really rare for a wah. I'm sure a lot of us that have used vintage-style fuzz circuits have sometimes plugged a wah into it, like say a Dunlop Crybaby, and it just uh, doesn't really operate in a very favorable manner. But the T-S picture wah, actually all the T-Swahs, uh, are fuzz-friendly, and so it's uh, it's allows you to be really expressive with a fuzz pedal after it so from there i'm running into a victoria 35 115 which is basically a tweed pro one of my favorite tweed circuits i'm using an ampete 88s amp switcher so i have this as a main part of my studio that basically connects all my amplifiers and i can select which cab and which head and and where i want to send it so i'm using the ampete and i'm sending it to a uad aux cab emulator into uh, API preamps into Luna. I have the Chase Bliss CXM 1978 set to a room sound. When I'm playing wah-wah parts, I often like a little bit of space on it, but not like a ton of spring reverb or hall or anything like that, but a room sound just really fattens and opens up the sound. So let's check this out. <laughs> Also have no diffusion on uh, the sample rate is in the hi-fi mode there's no modulation and it's on the room setting so that was just clean into the Victoria with the wah so now I'm gonna kick on the sun face <laughs> guitar volume back a little bit. I'm going to mess around with some of the faders on the CXM. So uh, they were all down before, except for the mix knob, which was about halfway up. Uh, let's bring them in and just see what it sounds with like. a bigger sounding room.
bring the mix down a little bit. Uh, let's uh, bring up the pre-delay a little bit and hear what that sounds like. Add a little, almost like a slap back. Let's crank up the pre-delay. Mix a little more. sample rate down to the classic, which is pretty much the Lexicon 224. We could really start to hear the delay there. This is an example without the T-Swah, so Sunface, and I do have the reverb set to room. I'm going to put it back on its lowest diffusion, bring up the bass mids about halfway. Let's play with the pre-delay. I'm gonna put some modulation on. now connected to Dunlop mini volume pedal in front of the CXM. I'm still playing the Stratocaster into the Victoria Pro and now I'm using the CXM for an ambient guitar effect. So I have it on a hall, I have it on low speed modulation and in the, the classic mode like the 224 style sample rate. Let's listen. I'm gonna crank up the mix knob so it's fully wet. Pull the pre-delay all the way back and let's, let's go into self-oscillation mode here. Mm. 
What's cool is you really hear the modulation working in the background there. And if I use the tremolo arm on the Stratocaster, just to wiggle a little bit, it really brings out that modulation. Turn the modulation off. So let's put it in fast mode modulation. Modulation off. One thing I like to do is I have the uh, CXM1978 set up on, um, for me it's on my rack unit, but if you had it on a tabletop or if you were doing this in, in post-production and mixing, uh, it, it would be a little bit different in that sense because it's not part of your performance, so you wouldn't be reacting to it. But what I like to do is uh, if I'm hitting a chord, let's say in first position or like I'm playing a, a, an open G chord, it has a lot of uh, bass in it, I might adjust the bass fader on the CXM in real time so it doesn't overwhelm. So I might start out with like a nice full chord. But as the chord's fading out, I might just pull back the bass fader a little bit. So then the tail is just like this shimmery sort of mid-range. I could also grab the fader before I play the chord. So it immediately has a little bass for it, but if I'm playing single note lines, I might want more of that bass. Because so much of this is about the tail of the reverb sound, it's really fun to be able to play with the faders as the chords or the notes are ringing out because I could really change the personality or the expression of what they mean.
running the analog band Sunface into the CXM1978, into the uh, Victoria 35115. I'm gonna adjust the pre-delay knob as I'm playing now. It creates a cool modulation warble effect. I think you can hear from those examples that the Chase Bliss CXM 1978 is pretty much a studio, well, high-end studio rack reverb in a pedal with faders that you can um, tweak in real time, which is pretty phenomenal. And, and I don't really feel like anybody else is doing that or has done that in this way. So I really think this stands out, uh, not only sonically, but also just from an interactive perspective. I'm going to play around with the bass and mid faders on the CXM to get them to self-oscillate and just show you some of the examples of, of the cool things and sounds that you can get by doing this. Now I'm running a Prophet 10 into this and this is going to be some Blade Runner-esque style sounds, but it's really neat what you can do as the note is oscillating. You can control which of the frequencies lingers on so you could have both of them linger on or you can manipulate it in real time so that as the na the note sustains um, either more the the bass or the mid frequencies will linger on and then you can fade them out so let's just i'm going to put them both up right now and let's let's get a pitch going here I'm going to pull a mid dot knob down. It's just the bass fader oscillating. I just pulled that down, so I'll stop. Now let's do the same thing, but I'm going to pull the bass fader down and just let the mids oscillate. Pretty cool, right? I really like that you could manipulate this in real time. So it's a little different than if you just had the knobs on a reverb preset and you were doing this because at first I actually have the bass and the mid uh, all the way up so that they're both oscillating. And then I'm making a tweak. So at first I want that full range oscillation happening. And then as the note decays from the synth, I'm using the faders to adjust uh, which one, uh, the balance, I should say, of the oscillation. pretty amazing. I think you'll notice how clean the reverb is too. So I'm hitting it with the Prophet 10, which is a pretty powerful output. Uh, and it's um, not distorting or I'm not getting any kind of weird glitchiness. I do have it on the vintage mode. So it's like the uh, Lexicon 224 sample rate. I just put the slow modulation on and I don't have um, the diffusion button switched on right now. So that's off, which is the low diffusion mode and we are on the hall setting i switched to a room sound on the cxm 1978 i still have the slow modulation on i'm going to use an arpeggiator I want to adjust the filter 
on the profit so we can hear how it starts activating the reverb and I'll also bypass the reverb so we can hear what the dry sound uh, sounds like. Uh, reverbs and delays make a huge difference to synth sounds. It's really interesting if you go back and, and uh, get a lot of the original synths that were used on classic recordings and hear them without any effects on them, what they actually sound like. So we're very, our ears are very used to hearing like uh, synthesizers processed. thing you could do is you can play with the pre-delay knob to get some really weird effects. Check this out. So it's self-oscillating, but I'm using the mix knob to bring the oscillation in or out. So no oscillation right now, no reverb. Bring in the mix knob. And then pulling it fully out. So you can create music just with the reverb itself. the CXM1978 into the um, lo-fi mode and uh, I have it on the hall setting and I do have some diffusion on low modulation. Let's hear how it sounds. It, it's like a delayed um, low quality reverb of sound and it's really neat. pre-delay now which is affecting the sample rate all the way up. I'm gonna pull it down. So there's not as much of a delay.
Now I'm playing with the pre-delay fader to get it to glitch and be kind of distorted and weird. I'm using a Dave Smith OB6 analog synth into the CXM 1978. Let's see if we can get it to self-oscillate. Oh yeah, that's cool. These are lovely dream-like pads. For that example, I was using a Mellotron M4000D Mini, and that's a Celeste sound. It, it's created a cool delay, but unlike any delay that you would get from an actual delay pedal. It's neat because you're, you hear the initial dry sound, and then the reverb happens, and it's lo-fi and in a room tone, so usually the, the repeat from a delay you would get would just be uh, the dry delay, but this is almost in another space, so it's pretty cool. Let's listen to the Mellotron with the three violin sound, which is the classic string sound. CXM on hall mode in the uh, standard, which is the 224 style sample rate, and I have it on high diffusion. Try it on plate. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Anatomy of Tone. As always, if you have any questions or comments or want to talk to me about any lessons or consultations on tone, or uh, you can reach me at uh, anatomyofguitartone at gmail.com.